to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. All right. Hey, my guest listeners, it's Rhea with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown, my favorite show on the pod. So today I am talking with my friend, Paul Tonner. Hi, Paul. Hey there. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. So Paul, you and I have known each other for a minute now. Big fans of each other. I've always really come to depend on you for your clear-eyed wisdom and advice. And so tell me a little bit about what you're doing now. So I am CEO and founder of an organization called High Peaks Group, named after one of my favorite places in the world, which is the Adirondack Park up in upstate New York. But High Peaks works with executives and leaders to help them really engage their teams to drive high performance in their organization. So that came about as a result of myself being a not very effective leader in a nonprofit role ages ago and took that experience and and converted that into a learning opportunity for myself and then realized that what I, you know, my competencies and my skills weren't enough to get it done. It was more about the how, like how I was doing my work versus what I was doing. And, And that makes all the difference in organizations when leaders understand the impact of their behavior on others. So High Peaks Group sets out to do that for, share that gift with other organizations out there in the world. Oh, I love that. So in my own work, you know, I was a founding executive director. I tend to work with a lot of founding executive directors. Can you flag for us some of the things that you've noticed about founding executive directors who have to make the transition to institutional executive directors? Yeah. Well, I think this is where it's almost, I feel like it's where one converts passion to profession. You know, that's where the challenge lies because there are a lot of passionate people who try to become professionals with that passion. And then the passion, you know, converts from a catalyst to get them motivated. Suddenly it becomes a barrier to acceleration and success because people get so stuck on, you know, startup mode or, or kind of, you know, panic mode or kind of enthusiasm mode that they don't develop the discipline and the processes to sustain the organization over a long period of time. So it's a really delicate balance to know the difference between, you know, when you're acting as a, you know, a passionate person with a great idea versus a, you know, an inspired professional who has a lot of competency. That is so interesting and true from what I've witnessed in my work. Can you dig a little bit deeper on some of the how and some of the behaviors that need to change in order to make that transition successfully? Yeah, I think it varies by leader, but I think one of the most important things you know a leader can do is, is learn how to separate oneself from the work, right? So I think, you know, the shorthand is how do you delegate? But I think that's a little bit easier said than done. I think it's about really understanding what what are all the things that need to happen and what level of involvement makes sense for me as the leader? It's going to vary, obviously, based on what, you know, what the leader brings to the table and what kind of organization it is. But I think you know, having an honest conversation, not just with yourself about it, but with the team to figure out what are people good at, what can I let go of you know, in an incremental way so that I'm not feeling detached from the organization by letting go, but also, you know, being involved at, a, at an appropriate level so I can do more things. Mm-hmm. So how does one do that? Because I think 
having run a nonprofit, I'm sure you have a similar experience. Like it just feels like you're always paddling to just keep your head above water. So how do you create the mental, emotional, and psychological space to have, you know, have that conversation with yourself or with your team? Yeah. I mean, it's, I think the keyword is trust, right? I think the trust, trust yourself, you know, know that you've gotten into this work because you're good at something. It's not, you're not in this work only because you're passionate, but you're in this work because you're actually quite competent and good at this work. I think all nonprofit leaders underestimate themselves in that regard. I know I did when I was running a nonprofit. And then the second is trust your team. You know, you put people around you that you know are good at things and enable them to do their work, you know, prov- you know provide systems for, for feedback and recognition for, for what they're doing and really ensure that you are not just trusting them, but being trustworthy yourself by modeling the kind of behavior that you expect to see from, from your team members. I read something recently that really stuck with me, which is something to the effect of if you think about how hard it is to change other people's behavior, think about how hard it is to change your own. For sure. Right. Really it's amazing, right? Like you, we've all heard these statistics about people who have a heart attack, go to the doctor and they say, yeah, all you have to do is like moderate your diet and, you know, get a little exercise and you'll be fine. And then 70% of people don't do it mm-hmm. and then have another heart attack, right? So changing your own behavior is, is a legitimately challenging thing to do. And you have to, you have to really be committed and understand why you're doing what you're doing and figure out how to do it. But I think the way people do it is a little bit wrong. They try to, you know, take on a lot more that they, they can legitimately handle. They don't start with small incremental goals, small wins, small successes. And, you know, there's a lot of research on habit change that shows that, you know, a lot of small, a lot of small wins are a lot better than, you know, holding out a big goal at the, you know, somewhere down some vague time period down the line and then just kind of hoping it happens. Yeah, which is funny because that's sort of antithetical to the founder ED, right? Because like you start up an organization because you have this big audacious idea and you don't quite know how you're going to do it, but you're like through tenacity and persistence and dog-headedness, you you get there. And yet once you reach a certain level, the strategy changes and it's small steps and small goals. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, you and I had spoken about this, but you were talking about patterns of behavior. And I'm curious about what is it that you're thinking about? And how, can it help, how can it help our audience? Yeah. So I think one of the things that leaders, you know, when leaders get stuck, mm-hmm. they try to figure out why they're stuck. And there's a number of different strategies people tend to use in order to figure out or kind of make sense of their stuckness. And a lot of times it's a self-assessment or some kind of like evaluation process that they go through to, you know, draw some conclusions, right? So like, you know, there's, there's a lot of these personality tests or some other kinds of, you know, commercially available assessments that you can take that put you in a category, mm-hmm. right? So like you're in Myers-Briggs gives you a four letter code or, you know, and, and then that sort of defines you and puts you in a box. And then you have to, you know, while I think those are valuable to some extent, I think they're limiting in that it gives you a lens by which you then look at your work exclusively and mm. it's not quite as holistic. So, you know, if, you know, like the introvert extrovert things, like I'm an introvert, therefore, and I'm not, I'm an extrovert actually. So I'll say I'm an extrovert. I'm an extrovert. Therefore, I love to be around people. I get my energy from other people. Well, if I operate as a leader through that paradigm, then 
I'm actually only telling part of the story because there is a lot of time where I need and want to be alone to get work done, right? Mm -hmm. So should I feel guilty knowing that I'm an extrovert and, but then I'm being, you know, I need to be alone to do work. So am I somehow shortchanging myself, shortchanging the organization? You wind up in these weird thinking traps when you're defined in that way. And I don't, I don't find that to be particularly helpful. And I don't like coaching leaders in that kind of model because it always feels like a little bit of an either or and, and don't leave room for the, the substance in the middle. So behaviors are really the most important thing to look at. Like it's, it's not so much a matter of are you an extrovert or are you an introvert? It's like, what do you actually do? And is it helping the organization? So is my, you know, building a network or socializing with the team or kind of building trust in a very kind of public way, does that help the organization move forward? It might be easier for me if I'm a little more kind of outgoing, but what does the organization need from me? Does the organization need me to focus more internally on, you know, some of the more, you know, tactical and, and technical aspects of the organization right now or, or not? So I think leaders don't tend to look at their specific behaviors enough to, and then look at those behaviors in relation to what the organization needs. And that's what, that's what I do with leaders now is like really sort of have them assess and figure out what it is they actually do and how that can help the organization move forward faster. So, I mean, it sounds like, I just think it's really hard to see yourself. And so is it possible to do without a coach or without an external person to help you along? Yeah, I think that it is technically possible. Of course, you know, as a coach, I'm going to be biased and say, no, you absolutely need a coach. But I think the, the, in getting, there are a lot of tricks you can, or some tips I, I would offer. You know, one is to really keep a notebook of the things that you do uh, mm -hmm. on a regular basis and, and be honest with yourself about what your intention is. Mm. Uh, and I think the, you know, so for instance, you know, I spent 10 minutes today, you know, just randomly walking around the office talking to people, right? So that's a behavior, you know, you can then, you know, after a while, you know, look for patterns of your own behavior and then try to be more intentional about using those things to advance the organization, you know? Okay. So I'm spending 10 minutes walking around. What is that really doing? Am I doing that intentionally? Do I have a, a purpose mission to in those conversations? Is it simply just to kind of build camaraderie? Is it to check in or am I providing feedback? Am I just secretly evaluating people and making them uncomfortable? What's really happening, mm -hmm. right? So be really intentional about why you're doing what you're doing. And I think building that muscle of, you know, looking at your own behavior and being, being a little bit more objective about why I think makes you a better leader because then that builds the builds your capacity to choose your behavior in the moment. Yeah, that's really helpful because actually I, I think a lot about my own experience and I, I feel like the intention impact gap always tripped me up, which is, you know, the intention that I had around certain behaviors was received in ways that I did not expect. And I think I also failed to go the next step to inquire, right? So I made a lot of assumptions about the impact or what, how people were receiving it. And right. instead I could have actually just asked the question, like, how, how did you receive that? Or yeah, totally. how, did, how did that land? And I, I also think what's hard too, is that without a level of trust, and I just think it's sort of human beings that the person who has the most positional authority has a really hard time getting 
honest feedback because of, you know, the fact that like true at the end of the day, like I do have positional authority. Right. So how do you recommend that folks are able to elicit that honest feedback given positional authority? Yeah, I think that once again, it goes, it goes back to being a trustworthy leader. So if you are building up a repository of trust with your team by being trustworthy yourself, you create opportunities for people to share that feedback with you. It's not going to happen overnight and you can't legislate it or mandate it in any way. You have to just simply role model that kind of behavior in order to get it yourself. You won't get nearly enough. I don't think any leader ever gets enough feedback from their team just by virtue of power dynamics, but you can increase the, the likelihood that you'll get something useful from, from your team by, by demonstrating that you're a trustworthy leader yourself. Like, so for instance, you're not going to stab people in the back by, you know, disclosing things that they share with you. You're not going to talk about other team members when they're not around. You're not going to sort of even badmouth your board members or your clients or people you serve. You really just have to be, you know, living the kinds of values that, you know, that your organization stands for in order to, in order to really kind of be seen as the kind of person with integrity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And one other thing that I would add that I felt was like a really good tip for me is that as somebody who is a fixer, the res- you know, my automatic response is always like, okay, let me just like receive the info and I'll give you 15 million ways that we can fix it. Mm-hmm. And instead just to say, thank you. Like, that's all you Yeah, exactly. I, I think one of the most fascinating moments I had as a coach I was coaching a leader who said, you know, I really don't ask for feedback because I'm afraid they'll give it to me and then I'm going to have to do something with it. And I'm already too busy and I can't deal. So right. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's, that's really interesting in so many ways. But I think that does sort of lead to the question of, you know, how do you just simply receive, how do you receive feedback? And what do you, what do you do? Do you feel obligated to do something about it right away? Or are you going to aggregate it and and sort of you know look at it from your perch as an executive with you know with lots of resources at your disposal to do something more comprehensive with it as opposed to you know chasing down every individual piece of data that you get back from your team that's just a you know I think a crazy making activity. So let, I want to switch gears a little bit to talk about culture because I know you're very passionate about organizational culture and so. Of late, I think the literature is all about you know toxic cultures, and people ask about how you discern a culture when you start an organization, and so on and so forth. And so, I'm wondering, how would you define culture, and what leads to a toxic culture? Well, culture—it's really interesting. There's a lot of definitions of it, but the way I look at it is the accumulation of everybody's behaviors in an organization. Right? It's sort of what everybody does, which is sort of built on a platform of implied rules, Uh, Mm -hmm. not necessarily everything that's in the employee handbook, but just kind of the way people tend to interact with each other and make decisions and and work to to get things done. So a toxic culture is where those, you know, those implied rules hurt people, hurt people, you know, by holding them back from realizing their full potential, but also hurt them emotionally by devaluing them or making them, you know, literally upset or not making them feel seen and, mm-hmm. and appreciated as a, as a real full member of the team and a, as a person, right? So those are, those are, that's my, how I would define toxic workplace. 
those behaviors that represent that are things, you know, like yelling at people or, you know, talking over others, passing people over for promotions that deserve it and, and mm-hmm. other things like that, that just create that sense in the place that things aren't fair or right. Mm-hmm. So getting, getting beyond that or how to, how to f- fix that is a very complicated thing and obviously very unique to an organization. But I think generally it requires those people who have the most influence on the culture, which are leaders or people with the positional power, to look at, look at what it is, you know, what are their mindsets around leadership? Do they know the impact of their own behavior on others? Mm-hmm. For, for some, it's simply, you know, flicking on the lights and saying like, do you realize that you're actually making people very upset by the way you talk to them? Mm-hmm. Wait, I don't know. You know, some people just don't even realize. Mm-hmm. Other, people's are, other people are very active in trying to kind of keep their power and the only tools they have are to keep others down. Mm-hmm. So it does start with the leaders and the people who, are, who have positional power and getting them to understand that in order for the organization to succeed and thrive, they need to take a look at what they're doing to slow it down. Mm-hmm. So this is very interesting. <laughs> it's a lot there. <laughs> well, I'm just also wondering what the delineation is between a toxic culture and people's individual baggage or individual sort of sensitivity or flashpoints. Because I mean, look, I think much has been made of like millennials and Gen Z, and I don't want to millennial bash because that's very broad, but but I do think that there's a level of emotional fragility that that I've observed with the younger generation around, I don't know, but maybe I'm just callous because I, I came up in a time where it was like, suck it up, it's work. Like, yeah, there are like times that you're gonna be unhappy and there are times that you're gonna have to do stuff you don't wanna do and there are times that you're like, your boss is gonna piss you off. And so like, what's the calibration there? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I think the, the reality is everybody brings stuff to mm-hmm. work, right? You're not, we're not all one dimensional. We're not cogs in a machine. We're not just programmable you know, units that you know, show up and you know, perform tasks on, on mm-hmm. a daily basis. That's just, that's just you know, if, if we were, we wouldn't have these issues with organizations. Everybody brings their perspective, their history, their values, their mm-hmm. experiences, all of it to, to the workplace. And when they mix together, it creates this, this culture or this, the experience that everybody's having at work. You know, and we could generalize age groups and, you know, mm-hmm. things like that to, to kind of, kind of you know, create some kind of general version of what might be done. But I think what might be more helpful is to think about the fact that everybody's responsible for the culture in an organization. And if we know that everybody's responsible, one, and everybody brings their baggage to work, then I think what every individual can do is be more compassionate at work. Mm -hmm. So understand that the person across from you at the table, you know, might have a ton of things going on in their life that you can't even see. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that the way you choose to treat them could impact and affect how they treat you back and how they perform their their work. So if you if you are more, you know, aware to the fact that there's a lot underneath the surface like an iceberg, right? So there's a lot underneath the surface and you treat them a little bit differently as a result, that in and of itself is an act of leadership that strengthens the culture of the organization and that's something everybody can do, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's 
that resonates with me. I guess I'm I'm just thinking about like a particular instance in which I received feedback about, well, you know, like something to the effect of like, I'm not happy at work or like my, my supervisor isn't, my, my work is not making me happy. And I'm mm-hmm. sort of like struck by that, which is like, that's not, that to me is an unrealistic expectation of work. Right. Like work should provide you with a sense of purpose. Work should provide you with a salary. Work should provide you with like, good productive things to do and, and good people around you. But like, I don't know, I, I just, I felt really, I really bristled at this idea that I was responsible for someone else's happiness. I was like, mm. that's not my job. <laughs> as your well, boss. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. And there, you know, my former boss of mine just wrote a book called How to Be Happy at Work, <laughs> which is kind of interesting to think about the, the role work plays in our lives. And I think the problem lies in the definition of happiness mm-hmm. and being clear about what we mean by fulfillment or satisfaction or happiness at, at work and what, you know, what proportion of the time you spend there contributes to your overall well-being and happiness in life. Yeah, you're not responsible. A, a leader is not necessarily responsible for someone's overall happiness, but they are responsible for creating an environment at work where people feel fully seen and heard, mm-hmm. right? And I think we know, like research shows, that when people feel seen and heard at work, they tend to, you know, it lowers all of the stress responses and makes them feel a lot more secure and safe. And that is a big component of happiness. That's a, mm-hmm. a, or at least safety and, and security and fulfillment where it's like, well, at least I don't have to worry about my own safety or my own kind of emotional kind mm-hmm. of vulnerability when I'm at work. And, you know, I can dial down the pressure and therefore be, feel a little bit better about, yeah. about what I'm doing. So let me ask you another question, because I, I feel like this is, has been a challenge for me in the past, which is, you know, I, I understood the value of psychological safety. I understood the value of creating trust within a team, you know, and there are sometimes when there are people who you need to let go for whatever reason. And I, and I can think specifically of one case where somebody you know, was let go because of underperformance, but he was also a very popular, well-liked member of the team. And then of course, like, I'm not going to, share his business about why he was let go. But then the narrative sort of in the hallways was like, well, you know, such and such was like, like whatever it was, like it was perceived as a, as a act of mistrust as opposed to a business decision. So can you talk a little bit about those sorts of situations? Sure. So this is why leaders are leaders because you, you can't win really in that, (laughs) you know, you're never going to, you're never going to satisfy everyone. You should just be content with that awareness that, you know, your job isn't to, isn't to sort of satisfy everybody's sort of sense of justice in an, mm-hmm. in an organization. Your, your, ability, your job as a leader is to be clear about the values of the organization and be clear and fair with accountability, whatever that may mean. Like if, if you are going to let someone go for lack of performance, you should do it consistently, whether they're popular with the team or not. Mm-hmm. And you have to do it every single time. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you lose credibility as a leader and performance suffers. So, yeah, I mean, what I heard you say was really just a tough, sad decision, but a decision. Mm-hmm. And, and the, as long as that decision was made with, you know, very clear justification and was consistent with other decisions that you either had made or would continue to make, then 
my guess is that's a net positive for the organization because mm-hmm. people will see you as as you know a trust you're gaining trust as a result mm-hmm. even though it sucks for people and they might create some kind of story around it you know and that you know water cooler talk is such that someone eventually says well you know also so and so like got let go for performance and you know, whatever mm-hmm. you know so there's a self correction or self mm-hmm. self you know, self-writing that happens like a wheel, right? A real mm-hmm. hard to push over a wheel, you know, when, when those decisions are made. So I would say, yeah, I mean, it sucks. You go home, you cry, you get upset, you, you know, whatever you do to self-mollify, but, but you come, come to work next day knowing that you made the right decision. And I think yeah. the team sees that. So last question, because I think you bring up a really interesting point, which is the power of story and narrative in mm-hmm. leadership and in organizational mm-hmm. culture. So yeah. I don't know that I have a question as much as I, I'm wondering, have you thought about how, like the power of storytelling and the power of narrative? Because I, I felt like one of the things, one of the many mistakes I made was not understanding the power of the stories that people tell each other and pass down. And so I remember, you know, many years after the fact, so referencing this example again, many years after the fact, people who weren't even in the organization at that time still told that story. And I was like, you didn't even know this bird. Like what, what? And so how do we, you know, how do we make sure that the stories that we're telling about the organization are such that it doesn't muddy the waters in our, into our current situation? I love that question. Here's why. Because, you know, leaders have an opportunity to help people be really healthy about the narratives that circulate in in an organization. And it's an opportunity to coach people to be much more objective in their decision making at work, too. So I think it's a responsibility of leaders to accept and appreciate whatever narrative comes their way. And it's also an act of leadership to say, you know, that may be true exactly as it is. And I'm not doubting that that could be exactly the way it is. And I would love for you to think of an alternative narrative that's just as plausible. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it builds on this idea that everybody brings their own perspective to work and everybody has their own angle on a situation, right? This is why, you know, why it's so hard to get witness testimony because people all just make shit up because, excuse my language. We swear on the podcast all the time. Oh, oh, I wish you had told me that sooner. (laughs) Uh, Because people bring, bring their lenses, you know, they have, they have their own perspective. And I think just reminding Mm -hmm. people that, you know, that narrative may be, may be true, but that's coming from a very specific place, a very specific perspective. And there's just as many alternative perspectives that you, that we could entertain. Mm -hmm. And I think that brings balance. It brings maturity and it brings, you know, a, a sense of emotional intelligence to your team when they're able to see alternative narratives at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful. And I wish I had known that back in the day. But I, I guess my other question as a follow-up is, at what point is it just dwelling? Because I think part of the mistake that I made was not recognizing the extent to which people needed to like rehash the story. Because as a startup leader, I was always like, okay, let's just move forward. Like, Let's turn the page. What's, what's the next thing? And I think my intention was to move people forward and the impact was that people thought I was glossing over the past and like, I was like a denier of the past. Yeah. I think the coaching I would give the prior version of Rhea is around 
you know, accepting and understanding and saying, thank you for that, that story. And why are you telling it to me? You know, what are you hoping that I, I mean, let's say there's some lines between which I need to read, you know, what, what are you trying to say without saying it here? Mm -hmm. You know, what, let, let's sit and talk as long as we need to, for you to share with me why you think it's important for me to know this. Mm. Um, And once we get, and maybe, maybe it's, they just, maybe they're just a gossip or maybe they just, you know, they're trying to express their pain and suffering through that process, or maybe they're trying to warn you. Mm-hmm. But I think the the goal is to really just say, you know, I'm hearing you and I'm really curious why you're sharing this mm. in this way with me right now. Such a game changer. I wish I could go back in time, Paul. <laughs> why did I call you about this years ago? Oh, uh, well, you know, hopefully we're going to help a lot of people are suffering through that right now. Yeah. So any folks listening, please take that piece of advice. Don't make the same mistake I did. Make new mistakes, <laughs> make different mistakes, not the same mistakes. So that's <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're, yeah, we don't want to recycle mistakes. That's right. That's right. We're, we're in the business of innovative mistakes. And by the way, not that it was a mistake, Rhea, because you're a very successful nonprofit leader. Well, thank you, Paul. No, listen, I, I made a lot of mistakes and like, and I own it and I think it, you know, there are bumps and bruises along the way, but I think it, you know, I'm stronger in the end. And I feel totally. like in my practice, I've been able to help other nonprofit leaders benefit from, from my mistakes. Like, totally. oh, I've made yeah. that mistake. It's all about learning. It's all about learning. Don't make that mistake. Make a different mistake. Yeah. <laughs> For the listeners out there, I will make sure that Paul's info is in the show notes if you want to get in touch with him and talk more and perhaps get some coaching. Thanks. Thanks, Paul. I'll talk to you later. All right, Rhea. Thanks. 